Father, as we uh, come today, uh, we, we come counting on the fact that you are a generous God. Many times in fear, we, I disbelieve and start to fear that you do not care about me and that you uh, are going to be stingy, whether it's with money, whether it's provision, whether it's with forgiveness and grace when I come back again for forgiveness. So today we remind each other and ask, Lord, that you would, would remind us of your generosity, that that's not a temporary uh, as a uh, that's not a temporary behavior towards us. You're not occasionally generous, but you are constantly and always generous so that those who need forgiveness can know that you're a generous God who is quick to forgive and quick to welcome. Those who come today bearing the shame of the days or the years past can know that you are a God that is quick to show mercy, that in the gospel wipes away our shame and instead clothes us with dignity and with honor as the, son, or the father in the prodigal son story clothed his son with, his, with a robe, gave him shoes for his feet. You cover our shame today generously, not waiting and not wagging your finger at us. God, I pray that you would remind those of us today that are worried about our finances, worried about the future and what this looks like. God, I pray that you would remind us that you're a generous God who cares far more for his people than he cares for the flowers of the field and the birds of the air. You promise to never leave us or, for to, and, or to forsake us. And so you're going to be generous with us in the future just as you've been generous with us in the past. I pray that we would not live as, as orphans who have nobody to care for us, but we would be reminded that we have a heavenly Father who loves us and who loves to provide for our needs, wants us to look to you for all of our needs to be provided. So I pray today, though, those of us today that are fearful and think that we are on our own, would be instead reminded today that you are a good and generous God who delights to rescue those who need rescuing. And so in whatever ways some of us need rescue today, I gotta pray that you would do that. I pray specifically, I pray for the Johnson family and the loss of Julia's mom. All of us know what it's like to lose loved ones. Many here have lost their mother. And so we pray, Lord, your great comfort on Julia and on Reg and on their whole family. God, we pray um, for Julia's dad, especially as he's adjusting to life without his wife. I pray, God, that you would give him great grace in this season. I pray that you would remind him that you care for him, that you love him, that you would use the, even these days to draw him closer to you. God, I pray for others in our church who are dealing with long-term sickness, chronic sickness, who don't know what the coming days or years, months look like. God, I pray that you would remind us that all of our that you would remind us that all of our days are listed that all of the hairs of our head are numbered and that you care deeply for them those who are again walking through chronic pain chronic sickness and wondering what the days and months ahead are going to hold god i pray i do pray for those that have financial difficulty today that you would remind them that you are the provider I got to pray for our community as we do a number of outreaches, some this week, some in the weeks and months ahead. I pray, God, that you would use us to communicate to our friends and our neighbors, whether it's with a conversation, whether it's with a ministry. I pray that you would use us to shout from the mountaintops that God saves sinners, that he loves them dearly, and that grace comes free. 
that it is, it is offered to us simply by faith. God, I pray for the churches around us who are gathering this morning. I pray, Lord, that they would worship in spirit and in truth. I pray that you would use your word to remind the churches of your promises, that you would remind the churches of your great love for them and for the people in their towns and in their community. God, I pray that here on the prairie that that your word would be spoken clearly and that it would call cause all of us to believe your promises and to live based on those promises. I pray that for all of the churches that are gathering this morning in our area. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Marriage has a way of like exposing like what you're really like and the things you didn't like realize were just a part of you. I grew I grew up in a family with six brothers. And I didn't realize that most of my physical interaction was like roughhousing until we got married. And my wife is like, you're just like rough all the time. You just bump into people in the hallway and, you know, like every, and so it's kind of fun now that the boys are bigger because I can roughhouse like, like I used to. But like in marriage, like I realized my instinctive reaction to things was just like a very, very rough kind of physical kind of thing, not a gentle hug a gentle pat, that kind of a thing. Everything ended up being kind of rough. But marriage also exposed more serious kinds of things because when you live that close with somebody who didn't grow up with you with the same parents, the same experiences, and the same thing, they begin to go, wow, whenever I say this, you react like this. And you start to realize, oh, there's like, there's like stuff there. Like I didn't realize until you know many, many years later with Emma's help, that certain ways I'd see somebody treat somebody, and I'd be reminded of bullies from when I was a kid, and I would bow up and be like, we got to stop this. And help, Emma helped me see that, that my instinctive reaction to things is not the only reaction that you can have towards things. When you see a bully, there's not only one way of reacting to that bully. And, there can be other scenarios. Maybe there's something that one in your life, whether you're married or unmarried, you've got somebody in your life and you realize when somebody says this, it reminds you of when you were a kid and this was said and this is how you reacted. I had a, I had a client once who every time he was around water, his mom would scream because she was deathly afraid of drowning. And so even though he was around 60 years old, Every time he was around water, he would panic because he would hear his mom screaming in his ear. And so he had never learned to swim, even though he had tried. He was deathly afraid of water because sometime in his past, water became associated with panic and screaming. I wonder today how many of us, as we go through, like find ourselves in pressure situations, and each of us have different ways we, we react to that. Some of them might be, something like being around water, but you find yourself in some kind of a, a difficulty at home, whether it's financial, medical, a relationship problem, and you, maybe you withdraw, maybe you lash out. Like all of us have instinctive reactions to the pressures at work. The boss says something and you have an instinctive reaction to fight, to run, to do something. All of us have our instinctive reactions to the situations and the pressures of life. Today, I want to show you from Genesis, the story of Abraham, where he goes back to the thing that he always does and what God shows him from that. Go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis 
Genesis chapter 20. When Abraham finds himself in a, a pressure situation again. Beginning in verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar and there Abraham said to his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And didn't she also say, He is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Let's pray. God, as we open your word, we deal with many pressures in life. I pray that you would use your word to speak clearly to us that, that foundational truth that should hold us up in every situation. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the benefits of walking through Genesis and the stories of Abraham is you can kind of put the pieces together. You may be familiar with this part of Abraham's story, likely are familiar that Abraham did something almost exactly like this when his, he and his wife went down to Egypt, where he was afraid of Pharaoh and said, she is my wife. So several weeks ago, we walked through this, the passage where that happened. But I want you to notice the context for this here. In the two chapters before this, it was, it was in verse, uh, chapter 18, God had promised to Abraham that this time next year, you will have a son by Sarah. You're going to have a son by Sarah this time next year. And so then when we get to chapter 20 and we go, oh, Abraham's doing what Abraham does again. The problem is there's like, this is crunch time in Abraham's life. There's like two months. I'm not real great at the math around pregnancies, but I do know there's like two months from the time the angel says, this time next year you're going to have a son by Sarah, to Sarah getting pregnant. And so what, hap what the context of this is, the promise of God is at risk. This isn't just Abraham doing what Abraham does. This is God promising the son of the promise by Sarah is, go is going to be born in a year. And not only that, but the son of the promise through whom the Messiah is going to come is at risk in this moment where Abraham just goes, bad situation, let's pretend you're my sister again, that way we're going to get out of this. The, what, what happens is Sarah is taken by King Abimelech, and Abraham has put everything at risk. The promise, the promised son, the promised Messiah, all of those things here at Crunch Time, because Abraham's instinctive reaction is fear and how do I fix this? So he tells so he tells Sarah, let's say that you're my sister again. So he does that. King Abimelech 
the name Abimelech, you may, be, you may remember, shows up several times throughout the Bible. It, it means father of the king, and it, we don't, we're not really sure if it's just a name that they liked to use or if it's a title that was used, but this is the king. And so the king says, well, I'm going to take her to be one of my wives. But the, the passage is clear that he hasn't gone near Sarah yet. And so God comes to him in verse, uh, in verse 3 and intervenes and stops King Abimelech. I love the way God says, you are a dead man. Like, like this, this King Abimelech is, is nobody. He's an outsider. But God comes to him and says, you are a dead man. And Abimelech says, I am innocent. Notice this is an outsider to the promise, but he's not like Sodom. He's not like the cities of the plain that have just been destroyed, that have no fear for God, no respect for God. Like God comes to him and he's like, God, I'm innocent. I, I, like, I didn't intend to do anything here that was against your law. And so, the, so even though he's an outsider, he's not a rebellious outsider. He seems to be a God-fearing outsider. But God comes in intervening to protect Abimelech, protect Sarah, ultimately to protect and preserve the promise. So then we pick up in verse 8 where God has said, return her immediately. So verse 8. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female slaves, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So here in this, Abimelech is like obeying God, but just making it really clear, Abraham, what are you doing? Why would you do this to me? So he kind of gives Abraham a tongue lashing, saying, I did not, I didn't harm you. I wasn't intending to harm you. And you did this to me. So, but then he gives her back. This, the passage makes it abundantly clear. He's not gone anywhere near her. And then in, in view of everybody, he gives extra gifts to Abraham. I love the detail where he says, he tells to uh, Sarah, I gave to your brother. He's just like getting that dig in that like, you told me that it was your brother. So I'm going to call him your brother. So he returns all of this to vindicate himself, to make it clear that if she has a child, it's not his child. 
You see, this is not just Abraham doing what Abraham does. This is Abraham putting everything at risk and God coming along to preserve Sarah, who has been put at risk, who's been used once more, who's been ignored once more. We've seen that time and time again in the story. That Sarah, the woman of the promise, is not treated very well by Abraham. And so God protects this promise to Abraham and to Sarah and ultimately the promise to you and I so that Abimelech can't get her pregnant and then now we wonder, wait, where does this child come from? You see, here at the, this, I think to understand this story, we have to pay attention to that. This is two months. Within two months, she's going to be pregnant, but it's got to be clear that it's Abraham's child. It's got to be clear, like everything is happening. This is crunch time in Abraham's life. This is crunch time in the foundational story of Israel. And it's not Abraham that shows himself the hero. It's not even Abimelech that shows himself the hero. It's God shows himself the hero. When when all the chips are down and, oh man, what's going to happen? God comes and says, I'm going to be faithful at this moment. I'm going to be the one who's faithful. What I want to show you from this passage today, and I want, to show, I, want you, I want to show you four ways that God shows his faithfulness here. We so often read through the Bible and think of, oh, be like Abraham and be like Moses and be like David. The God is the hero of the story, and I want to show you three ways, or I'm sorry, four ways God shows his faithfulness. First, God is faithful to the fearful. Look at Abraham. You see, Abraham tells a half-truth but he does it deceitfully. Genesis has already made it clear that that Sarah is his half-sister. That was in the genealogy when we're first introduced to Abraham. He married his father's daughter by another woman. He tells a half-truth that's completely deceitful. And when he says, he says, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham shows himself in this story, but really at a lot of different points. Abraham shows himself to be somebody that's afraid. When he goes to Egypt, he's afraid someone's going to kill him. When he comes here into this land, he's like, surely these people are going to kill me. Abraham, who has the promise of God, still finds himself regularly afraid. And so this story shows to us A God who is faithful to somebody that's afraid. You see, it's so easy. I I think for us to say slogans like faith over fear, like, oh, no big deal. Like Abraham's the father of faith, but when things get hard, Abraham's like, how do I save myself? I wonder if anybody here finds themselves today like Abraham. Finds themselves going, man, there are so many risks. There are so many dangers. What is going to happen to my kids or my grandkids? What's going to happen to me and to my future? What's going to happen with this health crisis or this health scare? What's going to happen with this relationship? Is my husband going to keep loving me? Is my wife going to keep loving me? Is, what's going to happen? I wonder if there's anybody here today that looks at the threats of the world around, the finances of the future, and says, I'm afraid. This story, I think, speaks to you and says that God is faithful to the fearful. 
That being afraid does not disqualify you from the promise of God, but it instead says, if you're afraid, stand in line with Abraham, looking to a God who is faithful to people that are scared. God is faithful to those that are scared. And it's a, I think Abraham calls to you and I today and says, come along with me. There was like two months. There was like two months before my wife was supposed to be pregnant. I was afraid for my life. I, was, I didn't think the promise of God could come true or that it was a big deal. And God showed himself faithful to me. And so maybe today you're here and you go, there's just so much to be afraid of. That Abraham calls to you and says, look to this faithful God who sees Abraham wandering and afraid and trying to protect himself, living in a foreign land that he doesn't know, not owning the land that he lives on and saying, who is going to take care of me? And God stands up and says, I will take care of you, Abraham. Maybe you're like me and there are some nights where you wake up and you have nightmares and you go, oh, ah, I don't want to go back to sleep because the nightmares are back. Maybe you're like me and there are some nights where you go, I don't even know where this comes from, but I don't want to go to sleep if the nightmares and the terrors come back. That's something that unites whether young kids and adults. Young kids wake up with nightmares and fears and, oh, what's going to happen with this and what will I do if this? This passage calls to us in the middle of the night when those nightmares or those fears come back, when you, you're scared for your parents and the, or you're, you're scared for your parents' relationship. It speaks to adults who go, what's going to happen at this doctor's visit? What's going to happen in this future? What's going to happen with the crops this year? What's going to happen if I lose my job? Abraham calls to us. God calls to us and says, I am going to be faithful to you. Look to me. God doesn't call and say, oh, it's no big deal. Instead, God says, I'll take care of you. Let me show you. I will take care of you. So this first way that God shows his faithfulness is he shows his faithfulness to the fearful. Second way that God shows his faithfulness, notice, is that God is faithful to the at risk. Look at Sarah. Sarah is the woman that is ignored like she doesn't say very much in the book of Genesis. I love the book of Hebrews that talks about her journey of faith and the fact that she had to work at it. But Genesis doesn't really give her a voice very much. She doesn't say a whole lot. She's just regularly put at risk by her husband who's looking out for himself and not thinking about her. And so here, imagine Sarah. God promised that you would have a child. You'd be pregnant within two months with a baby. Here you are, an old woman, and here you are again in a foreign land, and your husband has said, this is my sister, and another man takes you to be his wife. You don't know how he is going to treat you. You don't know if this king who has taken you into his harem is going to be a kind husband. You don't now know what the future is going to hold. And so we have this Sarah who's ignored, and she's used, and she's at risk, and Sarah finds that God is faithful. God is faithful to preserve her. It's not just her husband that's going to be the one of the promise. It's Sarah. The God's going to keep his promise to her too. And so before the king can do anything to her, God comes and 
defends and preserves and restores her back to her home, restores her honor, restores her from all of that risk. Because God is showing to Sarah, I am watching out for you. Maybe you here today won't feel ignored or at risk. The world is a scary place and you can just go, God, did you just forget about me when you were giving out gifts and when you were giving out promises and you were intending stuff? God, did you, did you forget about me in all of this? Maybe you're here today and you identify with Sarah and go, God, am I ignored? And here the God of Sarah says, no, I'm faithful to those that are ignored and at risk. Those that really don't have anybody to watch out for them. Maybe you know somebody. Maybe this isn't you, but you know somebody today that needs to hear this. That there is a God for Sarah's. There is a God for the the scorned, ignored, used, and overlooked. Maybe you know somebody that that needs to hear there is a God who sees and cares even for you. Let's, let's not just think that this sermon in this text is just for us, but God has given uh, people in our lives who need to hear there's a God not just for heroes like Abraham and Joshua. There's also a God for people like Sarah. The silent majority, maybe we could say, who live their lives, and they need to hear that there is a God for them. That's the story of the Bible, right? Like there are stories of the heroes of the faith like Moses and even Gideon and Samson. But there's also the God of Hannah. There's also a God for the childless woman like Hannah. There's a God for, not only in this story with Sarah, there's also a God for Hagar, the servant girl. When we look in the Bible, we see widows who lose their only son, and God raise him back to life, not because, oh, this woman is going to do something, but simply because God is a God for those that are at risk and ignored and on edge. When we look at Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, we see Jesus not simply looking out for the rich and the powerful and those that can start churches and do missionary movements, but also women who've been bleeding for 12 years and need somebody to to heal them. It's for outsiders like the centurion who loses his his daughter and says, can you come and heal her? Right, the, the story of the Bible is not Jesus just taking care of those that can do something or accomplish something, but that Jesus notices those on the edge of the crowd, those on the edge of society. Because God is a God who is faithful to those that are on the edge, the marginalized, the at risk, the ignored. I wonder how many of the people in our lives living in Manchester or Scott County or the the communities around us, who the world would look at as somebody on the edge, not useful, not going to do anything amazing. I wonder how many of the kids in the school that you go to or the the school that you teach at, nobody's going to look at them and go, this is the next president of the United States of America. This is going to be the next CEO. This is going to be the next... But they need to hear there's a God who's faithful here to people on the edge. I wonder how many people in our families 
need to hear that there is a God who is faithful. Not based on all of the things that can be accomplished. Not because they have so many gifts. Not because they have so much money. But simply because the character of God is to be faithful. And that means our church too should be a place that declares you don't have to be about something. You don't have to be on the verge of accomplishing something to hear that God is a faithful God to you. That the people who live around us who live on our block, live on the next farm over, need to hear through our, the witness of our church that there is a God for Sarah's. The third way God shows his faithfulness in this passage is he shows that he is faithful to an outsider like Abimelech. God shows that he's faithful to outsiders. You see, Abimelech shows that he's not like Sodom, but ultimately he's still an outsider. His people never become the people of the promise. Abimelech never becomes this great leader. And yet God comes and preserves and protects even his life. God comes and says, I knew that you did this with a clear conscience. And so that's why I came and that's why I did not let you touch her. God warns him because God's working on the promise here, but God preserves and is faithful to Abimelech too. And so this passage reminds us, kind of related to, to Sarah in the story, but it reminds us that God is faithful to the outsider. Those whose circumstances have seemed to put them outside of the promise, those whose family have put them outside of the promise, those whose mistakes have put them outside of the promise, find in this story that the God of Abimelech is faithful to outsiders too. Because outsiders are included and blessed. This story calls to us and says that when even he, at this point where God's narrowing his promise over and over and over and saying it's going to be Sarah, not Hagar. It's going to be Isaac, not Ishmael. He's going to narrow and say it's Jacob and it's not Esau. It's going to be Judah and not Joseph. Even at this early part of the Bible where God is narrowing his promise, he is using Abimelech to say, but that doesn't mean that I've turned my eye back on all of the outsiders. It reminds us that then when we get to the book of Acts and we get to the New Testament, that the God who is opening wide his arms at Pentecost has been opening his arms wide to outsiders from the very beginning. It's not a different God who changed his mind, but the, the God who is teaching us by narrowing the promise always reminds us nobody is too far outside my promise to be protected and to be blessed. So we get to the New Testament and find that those of us who have no, no link to Abraham by blood get included in the promise because God has always been faithful to outsiders like you and I. We don't get to claim the promise because of our parents. We get to claim the promise because like Abimelech, we receive the faithfulness of God to us. I want to show you the fourth way that God shows his faithfulness in this story is that God is faithful to finish what he started. You see, 
this whole thing is not about, I said this earlier, it's not about be like Abraham or even be like Abimelech and Sarah. This story says, look, God finishes what he starts. He promised that a year from now you will have a baby. And so then Abraham puts the whole thing at risk. God says, I am going to protect and preserve Sarah. I'm going to make sure her reputation is intact. That there is no question that this child is Abraham's child because God promised and he's faithful to finish it. Abraham blows it, but God is faithful in this moment. You see, I think that this passage ultimately calls all of us to, to see and believe that at crunch time, God is faithful. When the pressure builds up in our lives and we go, how are we going to handle this? Where are we going to go with this? What am I going to do with this? This calls to us and says, God is going to be faithful there. We go through life so often uh, uh, responding with our own habits. We respond in the ways that we learned when we were children. When when pressure builds up at work, we respond in ways that we maybe learned over the years. But here, I think this passage calls to us and says when the pressure builds and when crunch time comes and you wonder, what should I be doing? How do I respond to this? This passage says God is going to be faithful then. God is going to be faithful to his promise. And so when he says that I will never leave you or forsake you at crunch time, God is going to be faithful to that promise. When he says, I I am going to feed you and clothe you and take care of you. When he says that I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to live inside you and give you the power to love and to obey me at crunch time, God is going to be faithful. When God says, follow me and leave this behind, God says, I'm going to be faithful. And when we reach the end of our lives and we find ourselves in a hospital bed or in an ambulance or wherever we find ourselves, when we find ourselves saying, God, what's going on here? This story calls and says, God is going to keep his promises all the way. All the way when everything else is at risk and we do not know how this is going to turn out, God says, I'm going to keep my promises. And so I go and I will prepare a place for you to come and be with me. I am going to go away, but I am going to come back one day and take you to be with me so that you can be where I am. So this passage calls to us and says, God is faithful to finish what he started. But maybe you go, how do we know? How do we know that's going to happen? We say, oh, God is faithful to the fearful. He's faithful to the at risk. He's faithful to the outsiders. But why? How can we know that God is not going to turn on us and reject us? How can we know that God won't change his mind? You see, this story where God is faithful to Abraham and Sarah and Abimelech is not ultimately about God being faithful to them for their own sake. Not because they earned it, not because they deserved it. You see, God was being faithful. He was being faithful to the child of the promises' sake. Even here, God is being faithful, not simply to Abraham, but to the child that's coming. Not simply to Isaac, but Jesus. You see, all of these promises are not fulfilled in Isaac, but in Abraham's grandson, Jesus, who would come one day. You see, God's faithfulness to you is not based on your feelings. Or on his feelings. It is based on his commitment to Jesus. And since Jesus is the one who died to take the punishment for our unfaithfulness and our unbelief. 
then we can know that God will always be faithful to us for Jesus' sake. Just like with Abraham, God is faithful to him for the promise's sake. He can be faithful to us for Jesus' sake. And so God's faithfulness to you is a result of his rejection of Jesus in your place. And then his acceptance of Jesus in the resurrection. So now, if you are in Christ, there is nothing to stop God being faithful to you. God's not going to find out some information about you and your family. That's going to be, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. If you are in Christ, there is nothing in your past and nothing in your future that will stop God from being faithful to you. Maybe you're here today and you say, what does it mean to be in Christ? How can I know that, God, that God's not going to hold my sin against me? You are here today and you say, you don't know the number of things that I've said, that I've done, the things that I've thought, and the ways that I have rejected God. The Bible calls that sin and says that what you're feeling is the conviction of sin. The weight of sin that says, I have separated myself from God and from his goodness and from his promises. But the Bible says that separation will ultimately lead to our physical death and spiritual death in hell forever. But the story of the Bible, it's already begun way back in Genesis, but we now know it through the rest of the Bible. The story of the Bible was God preparing for a man, who would, the God-man Jesus, who would live the life that we should live, died the death that we should die, and was raised to new life for us. So that God can look on him and accept his death for ours. And can look at his life and give it to us because he's earned it. And so that if you repent of sin, that means to change your mind, to turn away and say, God, I have rejected you but now I'm going to accept and follow you as my Lord and Savior. That if we do that, then that acceptance of Jesus becomes God's acceptance of us. If you have questions about that, come and grab me at the end of the service. While we sing a song, maybe while we're in, while we're, uh, in the hallway later, but let today be the day that you trust in Jesus to save you from your sins and you stop trying to, to earn enough to get God's promises for you. If that's you, come and grab me today and let today be the day of salvation for you. This passage, which can feel like Abraham being Abraham again, ridiculous husband being a ridiculous husband again, instead calls to us and says, God is faithful at crunch time. And so today I want you to imagine what changes in your life when the 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 when you begin to respond to life from that knowledge, that, that bedrock belief, not the bedrock belief that I am alone and nobody is out there to take care of me. Imagine what changes when, when the pressure in life builds and you go, God is faithful even here. He's done it before. He's done it before. Imagine what changes for you in your heart when the pressure at home doesn't change. A loved one, maybe it's an adult child, Still, things are so hard. Imagine what changes when you get to face that reality with the belief God is going to be faithful even here. Imagine what happens in your home. In your home when you can live with the reality that God is faithful and I am not facing this without His help. He's not leaving me alone hoping that I manage this. He's instead walking alongside, promising to be faithful, and then doing it. Imagine what happens in our church when the bedrock belief for our church is that at crunch time, God is faithful. He's done it before, and he's going to do it again. 
Imagine what happens in our community or our communities when the, when the community, the people around us who deal with the same pressures that we deal with get to hear the good news that God is faithful to the ignored and the at risk. He's faithful to the outsiders. He's faithful to the fearful. God is a faithful, loving, gracious God who comes near to us. That sounds like a different kind of community. Let's pray for that. Let's long for that. Let's pray. Jesus, we Thank you that you are faithful to us. We so often react to life out of our own strength or out of our own weakness. I pray that you would help those like Abraham who are afraid to know that you love them. Those like Sarah and Abimelech who feel like outsiders who wonder if you have plans, that you would call to them and say, I love Sarah's. God, I pray that our community would hear this good news. In Jesus' name, amen.